I find it like a very tinny and unattractive word. If at first you don't succeed, do it again and better having learnt from the first time. I was shaking my head all the way through thinking, there you go, that's how it's done. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in this episode we're going to be talking about success. We'll hear from Man Booker Prize winner Aaron Dutty Roy, Waterstones Book of the Year winner Sarah Perry and here in the studio we are joined by a woman who knows plenty about success in no small part due to her fabulous podcast and book How to Fail. It's Elizabeth Day. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well it's very very much my pleasure. Um, I'm of course also here with Holly and Dan. Hello to both of you. Hello. Now, Elizabeth, uh, you may know this already, but at the beginning of each podcast, I ask Holly and Dan to, to bring something to the table, to share something. And I was thinking that for this episode, we could all share a failure. But of course, I think I should go first and in a moment of great honesty, admit to the audience that this is not the first time we've had this conversation, is it? <laughs> it isn't, Will. Now, why is that? Tell us. So for me to go first with my failure, um, we recorded this episode of the podcast and then in a moment of great technical savagery, my laptop replaced the audio from from the uh, recording with a completely different bit of audio when I was editing the podcast together, therefore deleting what we had recorded. And we have tried everything. If you are in tech and you know how to retrieve a lost file in GarageBand, please tell me because we could not. It just seems to be impossible. So we are back again to have another go. <laughs> And that crying. is absolutely what I'm about. Yeah. If, you, if at first you don't succeed, do it again and better having learnt from the first time. I think that's the best I can possibly hope for. And I can only apologise once again for being such a complete klutz. But there we go. Poor you. It's fine. The, the room is so much cooler this time. The first time we recorded it, it was incredibly stuffy. Yeah. It's because yeah. you've done David Nichols in the morning and he's a very sweaty man. Exactly. I'm joking. <laughs> That's only a joke. That's a joke. He's lovely. <laughs> He's not actually. This is going to be a great headline. Elizabeth Day says David Nichols is sweaty or, or talks a lot of hot air. Um, that would be better. It's, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, it's much cooler today, so I'm hoping we can all be a little bit more relaxed. Um, me having fronted up first with my failure, who would like to now take the mantle and, and, and explain how they have failed? I'm happy to... I've always got so many failures. So um, my, I've got two failures, one big and one small. Um, the big one is that because, ironically, How to Fail, the book and the podcast have been quite successful, I've been doing an enormous amount of promo and work over the last few months, which has been great, but it means that I've been less good at getting back to emails and arranging to see friends. And actually my friends are the most important thing in my life. So that really bothers me that I haven't had time to properly see the people that I most love. So I'm hoping now it's calmed down a bit, I can be better as a friend. And the second mini failure I have is that the weather has been so humid lately <laughs> and my hair is a massive frizzball. And I have lived a long time on this planet and I still have no cure for it. It just it literally, as soon as it reaches the atmosphere, my, my hair turns into just like a crinkle crisp. So that's my second failure. For anybody listening, if you've seen that episode of Friends where Monica goes to the Caribbean, it's basically yes. that. It's literally that, except that's... I put it up because that's, that's the, I literally got on the tube this morning and started sweating terribly. And uh, and I just haven't recovered since, so I've just had to put my hair up and claim defeat. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, <laughs> your hair looks lovely though. Well, thanks. That's because I have now learned after the last week to tie it up before I leave the house, because oh, really? otherwise I kind wrong. of get into work really hot, and then I tie it up, and it's at that point. I'm, yeah, it's gone. 
has happened. Right. We're doing beauty tips on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tie your hair up before you leave the house. In fact, look at Dan's fringe. I mean, the volume on that. My hair just has a lot of volume anyway. Yeah. When I was younger, I used to want to kind of like having like long hair was a thing amongst my friendship circles. When so were I, you young? Yeah. <laughs> like the 90s. Well, no, it's like when like Kings of Leon were like a oh, okay. thing and they had their long <laughs> yeah. hair um, in the 70s. <laughs> um, but I like wanted to grow it and instead of I was growing it for ages and my parents were like, oh yeah, just keep keep going. It will no. drop eventually. And it just kind of got bigger and bigger. <laughs> Ended up with like this kind of like big ginger afro, which, yeah, wasn't such, wasn't the look I was going for. Um, that wasn't my failure. Um, I'm going to go with a, a string of three swimming failures okay. um, today. Um, I, my ability to have common sense or... I don't have any common sense, essentially, mm-hmm. is what these three reveal. Um, so I've had, in a quick fire succession, I went swimming on holiday. Every time I go on holiday, something happens in a pool. One year, I went... <laughs> oh, oh, cut that, is- cut that. <laughs> Every year when I go on holiday, I have a m- no, mishap in a pool. That's not going to work either. Shut yourself in the yeah. pool. That's what you're going <laughs> no, for. I have, n- I have not gone that far. Um, one time I was in the pool and I had my phone in my pocket of my swimming shorts was stood with the waterline below my swimming shorts and um, below my phone for like 10 minutes and then decided to dive in and then obviously my phone was ruined um which was quite humorously followed by me emerging from the water just shouting rice at a waiter and then kind of looking at me blankly um i've had another occasion on which i've like dove in dove in dived in Dived Either in. I think is fine. Yeah. Belly flopped. Belly flopped <laughs> into the shallow end of a swimming oh, pool that, no, and like the serious. first day of my holiday and just kind of like oh, smacked no. my nose on the bottom. Um, and then a while ago, I grew up in Norfolk, as I've probably mentioned on this. Um, we took a trip to Wells, which has like a huge, like when the tide goes out, it really goes out. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of goes out for... I'm going to say half a mile, that's probably wrong. It's massive. But it also has this massive riptide as a, as a result. Um, and I decided to dive into that with my glasses on and emerged <laughs> in the middle of the ocean without my glasses or just seeing them <laughs> like being swept away out to sea. And then I'd driven to the beach and I had to therefore like work out how to get home without being able to see. Oh, damn. So a whole host of swimming failures you for you You need to stay away from the water. Stay away from water. It's never yeah. going to be safe for you to go back in no. the water. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's an our generation joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for those of you who were young in the 70s, yeah. you're going to love that reference. Yeah. <laughs> Holly, what have you got for us? So I am going to talk about a very embarrassing failure that I had recently when I was closing an event that we had hosted for Julian Barnes for about 400 people. And I got up and decided to go with some fancy wording normally I would say thanks everyone for coming go and grab grab some wine but instead I wanted to go for please everyone join me in thanking Julian but instead of that I said please everyone thank me (laughs) (laughs) I was so mortified so embarrassed everyone in the audience found it hilarious apart from Julian who actually hadn't been listening He didn't understand why everyone was laughing. I had to stand there quaking, like, oh gosh, I can't believe this has happened. Before then having to re-say, please join me in thanking. And it was just so embarrassing. Had to wait for the laughter to die down. Yeah, it was not, awful. not a sound you want to hear at the end of a book event, just sort of uproarious <laughs> <Raw> laughter. <laughs> <laughs> also, so I really hope that, I mean, I love this idea that you'd said that and they'd all 
sort of gone, thank you, but, yeah. but that didn't happen. No, absolutely no. not. Oh, it's a shame. <laughs> and Dan, like, laughing in the sidelines, obviously found it hilarious. Yeah, I, I, it was just myself and a colleague stood in the wings kind of going, did she just... Did she? Did she do that? She did that. She yeah. definitely okay. did that. Um, we, so we've all fronted up there. We've shared some failures, Elizabeth. And obviously with your book and podcast, you, you ask your guests to do the same. But we're, of course, doing this podcast, which is about success. But of course, why are failure and success inextricably linked, do you think? Well, for me, they are two sides of the same coin. So you can't fully appreciate success without also having experienced the sort of see me underbelly of failure but I think also that in learning how to cope with failure because failure is something that happens to us all it's a very democratizing thing it just is it's a fact of life but in choosing to build on failure and learn from it you build up your emotional resilience and Mm. that makes you not only more prepared for success when it comes but makes success more likely to happen and I start my book with a quote from Truman Capote which says that failure is the condiment that gives success its flavour and I think that that's absolutely it that you can't taste the fullness of success or happiness unless you've also experienced failure and and to some extent sadness. In light of your failure for the week I can't help but just hear all of this as like a coaching or therapy session for Will with the podcast being called (laughs) success and you saying your failure and then success it will be worth it. I mean I really hope it is obviously but (laughs) I'll tell you it was one of those moments like when I realised what had happened it was the closest I've ever come to spontaneously bursting into tears at oh, work. Well. Because it was just, I, there's just a, a lot going on, you know, yeah. to getting it all together. And I just thought, this is not what I need. And it wasn't because I hadn't actually deleted it. The, the technology had stepped in and ruined my life. And it's just so frustrating that you can't do anything about it. It's one of my worst fears, I have to say. Whenever I do interviews as a journalist, um, I go along with a tape recorder. Well, actually, now I use an app on my phone uh, because I'm no longer living in the 70s. <laughs> um, with Dan's hair. Yeah, so I... So so I record the interview, but I'm always paranoid that the recording isn't going to work. And so I take notes as well. But I'm talking to someone as I'm taking notes. So it looks like I'm sort of doing automatic writing and communing with ghosts. And it really puts some people off. So oh. many people comment on it. They're like, oh, my God, what I can't believe you're taking notes. Yeah. yeah, I was like, well... Anyway, and uh, so I completely appreciate how horrible it is when it happens. Well, we're here now. We've, we've got through that stage. We have. Um, when you were putting together the, your podcast series, obviously you started off with some very well-known faces and, and names. And then as it's developed, you've in, incorporated people from all walks of life, which I find really interesting. And I wondered, for you, listening to these failures, were there any great differences in the experience or, or are the lessons basically the same for p- people, you know, whoever they are? I think generally speaking, the lessons are actually gratifyingly the same. And when I say gratifying, I mean because um, I am a firm believer in the notion that what connects us is greater than what sets us apart. So, so many people, whether it be Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Alistair Campbell or Otago Uagba or Dame Kelly Holmes, have had similar struggles with either mental health or um, feeling lost in their 20s or having massive career pivots. But the one thing that I do think is interesting is that when I interview someone who is bona fide famous and a celebrity, like Phoebe, for instance, um, it's very interesting how they cope with that fame and that level of recognition because so often they are recognised in public and members of the public will have certain preconceptions about this person and who Mm. they are and how they've got it nailed. And actually there's a lot of other stuff going on underneath that is a lot more vulnerable and 
the beauty of my podcast is that I think it offers a safe space for those people to open up about those vulnerabilities. Um, and Phoebe actually came back on in season five and talked about her last year. So she was my first ever guest on How to Fail. And she came back on and she talked about those 12 months where to many of us she became the epitome of success because mm. of Fleabag 2 and Killing Eve. And actually she chose her three failures from the those 12 months. And it was really interesting to learn from her that there had been so much going on under the surface as well. So mm. I think though that's the main difference. When you sort of did your first season, eventually you did do an episode where you spoke about your own failures because you thought it was only fair yeah. with everybody sharing theirs. But obviously with the book, there's very much more of you in that book and you sort of talking about your own failures. Were, were you more capable, I suppose, of sharing those things because of what had come before with the podcast or do you think you'd have been happy to kind of go there straight away? That's such a good question. I definitely think I was more comfortable. I think I would have been able to do it anyway, but I would have felt much more vulnerable doing it. Um, I am something of a natural sharer. And um, because I do believe that connection is really the reason for us to be alive as humans. So I'm very, um, as Will knows, because we met at a dinner a few years ago and basically shared our life stories within about 10 minutes and you missed your last train and I like told you everything about my divorce and my failure to have children and stuff. So I am, I do have that natural inclination, but what the podcast taught me was that the things that I thought were most personal to me and to some degree, the things that I was most ashamed of wrongfully so I think in my own life um, actually turned out to have the most universal resonance so mm. I realised that in being my most authentic self and being vulnerable in a public sphere actually the response I got was so incredible and there were so many other people who felt able to share their stories you know even friends of mine who had never spoken to me about their own struggles with infertility um, were able to open up to me so that was a really supported frame of mind to go into writing the book in. Um, and, and therefore, I think it made me feel more confident that I, what I had to say was worthwhile. Mm. We're going to move very much on to success now because we're going to hear from one of our recorded authors. And I find it really interesting that when talking about failure, we, we end up talking about success. And in talking to her about success, we will end up hearing about how difficult it was for her to deal with her success. Of course, Aaron Dutty Roy is the author I'm talking about, and it was over 20 years ago I realised that her debut novel, The God of Small Things, won the Man Booker Prize. She was catapulted to fame all over the globe, and it made a huge difference to her life. But as we'll hear from this interview, it wasn't just her that was affected, it was her friends and family too. I find it like a very tinny and unattractive word because, you know, to be considered successful in a in a world that one is so at odds with is 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 is, is funny mm. you know so I, I i i i wouldn't use that word to describe anything about myself but there is something uh, called um, oh, what would i say it's a it's a it's a kind of relief you know when the blood in your veins begins to flow more easily. Mm -hmm. And that always happens to me when I know that I have managed to write what I really think okay. or what I really want to, when I have closed the gap between language and thought, mm -hmm. you know. It doesn't have anything to do with how it's received by other people or what prizes it wins necessarily. 
Winning the Booker Prize was a great thing. I mean, it, obviously, it's not something I'm going to carp about, <laughs> you know. <laughs> of course not. But it, but it, it isn't as simple as what people think. It wasn't just like, oh, isn't this wonderful? Because it became my middle name, you know, Arundhati Booker Prize winner Roy. And when I decided, not I didn't decide, I just knew that, you know, I wasn't the person who's going to now move away from my old life to be where others, quote-unquote, successful people live and mill around. Mm. So that kind of spotlight, that kind of fame, uh, you know, and continuing to live in your old life with your friends and the people that you love meant that they all had to deal with it. Mm. It wasn't just me. And that was really difficult, you know, because from being a group of very egalitarian people, you suddenly one person is just pulled out and doesn't want to be pulled out, you know, yeah. and wants to be in solidarity with so much. And so how do you do that with grace? And it involves grace on everyone's part, not just mine. Mm -hmm. It was really traumatic and difficult. Also because it also happened at a time when suddenly India started moving sharply to the right mm. and nationalism, majoritarianism, nuclear tests, this huge move towards what they call development, but what was ending in tragedy for mm. people mm. was happening. And it was uh, really uh, complicated, you know, because on the one hand it gave me the space and the ability to, 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 to write, to be heard, to speak about it. And on the other hand, even there, you know, even amongst your own comrades, why is the camera only pointing at you? You know, that, that's just the opposite of what it's meant to be. Mm. And yet, it's important that that voice is being heard, you know. And there was uh, the question of money, which was a very difficult thing to deal with because I had never had money and I never it was never something that I had you know I'd never done anything I don't you know I'd done things in order to survive but mm. I had never done anything in order to make a lot of money mm. but suddenly I did you know and how do you share that how do you deploy it in solidarity rather than otherwise uh, I there was a, a point at which I felt as though every feeling in the God of Small Things had been traded in for a silver coin, right, you right. know, and I could just become this this little silver figurine, and I had to break that and find a way of, you know, I mean, giving money away also has its own conflicts and creates real problems and. Uh, so, but now it's all fine because I found a way of doing it and I found a way of handling it. But, so, it was not simple. It no. was wonderful, but it's not simple. Absolutely not. So, as you saying there, that, that one way of dealing with it is to sort of spread out the success and share it with people, but also being aware that what you're also sharing are the negative aspects that come with notoriety or success or having that sort of spotlight on Everything, I mean, you, you know, I mean, when I was saying things about Kashmir or when I, you know, there, are, there have been 
occasions when a kind of mobs have turned up at my house, mm. sometimes at the wrong house, mm. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh God, you know, I, I don't expect other people to to take the consequences of what I'm doing. Yeah. And they have to sometimes, and they've had to. So, you know, it's not, there's nothing to complain about, but I'm just saying it's not, it's not as simple as it seems, you know. It's because, because the beautiful thing about it all is that eventually today, uh, I'm the kind of writer in India who's not, uh, who doesn't have to be interpreted through prizes and reviews and some kind of establishment that's presenting me. It's like a direct shot into the bloodstream, you know. Mm -hmm. So. There's protest, there's love, there's my own book being sold, pirated Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Would you like to buy it for half price, you know, at the traffic lights? <laughs> and it's great, you know, it's not... Um, somehow that, that, that kind of separation between literature and society has been broken. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to be presented through anyone now you know when you talk about the way the way that you write the relationships that you have with your characters you sound to me as though you're an artist who gets the greatest pleasure from creating the art and you don't think about the sort of any remuneration that might come after it you know that's not why you're doing it you're doing it because you have these characters that you want to share with the world is that you right? can't uh, i mean you know i don't think that either the god i mean obviously when i wrote the god of small things i didn't even I didn't even know that that kind of success is possible in literature. You know, I was yeah. I used to work in cinema, and when I wrote The God of Small Things, I thought I was downshifting, you know, <laughs> like, you know, 300 people perhaps maybe would read it. But uh, once that happened, I had a choice between, you know, trying to duplicate that success and write the god of small things in different ways mm. you know the son of the god of small things type of thing or i had the choice of rolling the dice which is what i did in the ministry of utmost happiness you know yesterday i was doing the sepal lecture on literary translation and i was saying how when you write and work in a country where 780 languages are spoken and there are 22 official <laughs> languages and you know I myself am such a hybrid of all kinds of places and people and languages so uh, each book especially each novel you have to make the language for it and you know to take the lyrical voice let's say of the god of small things and use it for the Ministry of Utmost Happiness isn't possible. Mm. Of course, there will be echoes of it. But to me, in the ministry, the risk of form and of voice was literally like taking the voice of the God of Swanks, the language of the God of Small Things, up a very tall building and throwing it down and <laughs> watching it break and then do, going down and picking up the pieces, the shards, and doing something which was very very risky and I could take that risk because uh, you know I was not uh, you know I, I have already written that whatever eight million copies <laughs> so why not take the risk mm. you know
how do you follow that quite frankly <laughs> like what an incredible clip I, and how incredibly she thinks I love that thing that she was saying about when writing is going well and feeling your blood sitting better in the veins this is why I'm not Aaron Dutty <laughs> because I can't even remember how she puts it but I think that that's really interesting because that massively ties in with what I think of as success which is knowing yourself like mm. the truest most authentic most honest version of yourself where you have to come face to face with all the things that you don't like and all your weaknesses and your frailties it's it's knowing yourself and it's taking joy in the task that you're doing rather than as she was saying um projecting and imagining what the audience will think of it once you release it mm. and also what having achieved success she was so conscientious and kind of yes, I have the success, yes, I'm being heralded as this kind of literary figure, but also what is heralding me hiding? What mm. What is going on in India? What's going on in various places in the world that you trumpeting me is, is blocking? And just mm. to kind of think like that, it's such a... I mean, it's just humbling <laughs> listening to yeah. it. I don't know how and else to describe she was it. constantly thinking about how her success was going to affect the people around her, mm. her mm. friends and her family. And she clearly has this group of friends who are sort of almost more than friends. They've got like a community, you know. And so that, that was clearly the thing that was very upsetting for her to see them being scrutinised or followed or harassed or whatever mm. it might be. And there, there aren't many people who think that widely are they about about their success mm. I think the thing that came to me throughout that whole clip was just her self-awareness of everything that she has done mm. through the writing process and as you say that um, kind of understanding and empathy towards people who have been directly affected by it mm, yeah. well so I think that there was a sense too that she knows that success is transient yeah. mm. and success is seen in such a two-dimensional way by our society now I think because success is viewed as the ultimate goal like when I get there and mm. when I am successful everything will be wonderful mm. <laughs> and I can eat candy floss and balloons will fall from the sky <laughs> and I feel that it's equivalent to happiness there is a lot talked about in our current society about how happiness is the ultimate goal mm. and actually I believe that both happiness and success are great when you have them but they are transient yeah. and that's what they should be and actually the deeper more profound stability comes from something like contentment mm -hmm. <laughs> or as mm -hmm. she was saying getting joy from doing the task itself yeah or like equilibrium or something like that yeah. kind mm -hmm. of being able to balance that and also recognizing what success means to you this is something you touched on right at the beginning between the personal and professional and also Aaron Dutty Roy touched on then is kind of what does success look like? Is success monetary? Is success prizes? Is success getting, what is it, marrying word and thought or whatever? Mm. Closing the gap between word and thought, yeah. which is an incredible, I mean, incredible phrase, but I think for any artistic endeavour, so whether it's word or thought or whether it's, I mean, for me, I suppose as an actor, completely transient experience on stage every night, you do the show and it disappears, mm. but you know when you've hit it right mm. because you have that moment of connection between you and the audience. And... That you know when that's right, and you know when it's wrong, because yeah. it's just it's it's completely clear. But also, I imagine, and you'll probably be able to attest to this better than me, as someone who doesn't write. <laughs> but um, also, that moment that Aaron Dutty Roy spoke spoke about of kind of feeling like you've managed to marry those two ideas together, and you've got it successfully down on the page. I imagine that's quite fleeting as well, and that when you've written something, you might go, "Yep, yeah, 
that's perfect I like loved it and then reread it at another moment and go mm. oh actually yeah there's, a, there's an awful lot of that and you, I, when you're writing novels when I've written four there's that constant push and pull between this is absolute rubbish and then it's like no remember what happened last time mm. maybe it's not that rubbish and maybe you have to um but I like I just like Arundhati Roy. <laughs> I've often described it as like when writing is going well, I feel untangled. Mm. It feels, and I compare it a bit to like hitting a perfect flow in yoga. There's just like a <laughs> sense that you're just doing what you should be doing and moving how you should be moving and thinking how you should be thinking. And those moments are worth everything. Mm. And I have to say that obviously when I'm writing a book, I want it to be successful. So I'm not just doing it for the good of my soul. I'm doing it because, as Will was was getting out there, I want to connect with the most amount of people I can connect with. Because mm. for me, that's the meaning of life. It's mm. like, ultimately, it's a like connection. And so therefore, I want it to be a success because I want there to be a conduit to get yeah. it to more people. So I'm not entirely, you know, unself-interested in that respect. I do mm. want it to do well. And I do want it to be in the Waterstones Piccadilly uh, window, <laughs> which I couldn't help but notice that How to Fail wasn't today. Subtle hint. <laughs> no, but I love the Piccadilly, the Waterstones Piccadilly window display is always just a phenomenal work of art. I love it. And hotly contested. I don't know what's in there at the moment, but I mean, you're more than welcome on your way out to just do a bit of Love one in. Yeah. I mean, that's not How to Fail, that's How to Win. <laughs> at Waterstones Piccadilly. Um, I, we're going to hear from another author now. And what's really interesting is that when, when when talking to authors about the same topic, they can sometimes say almost diametrically opposed things without it actually being the opposite. There's also this thing about not deserving success, which I find really interesting with writers, even though they sit there and they work and they craft and they craft and they craft. And then when one of their books is a success, they often are a bit like, oh, why that one? What's happened there? Um, we're going to hear from Sarah Perry. Uh, and I spoke to her, it was on the publication of her most recent novel, Melmoth. Um, but her previous book, The Essex Serpent, was Waterstone's book of the year back in 2016. And it was one of those years where it seemed to me that everybody had a copy of that book in their hands. It was absolutely everywhere. So what was that like? like for her I wondered very complicated I think I think a lot of it has to do with a feeling that nobody really deserves that level of success um, and the knowledge that there are so many arbitrary factors that come into play I don't just mean um, you know my having encountered the legend in the first place I mean things like uh, something in the book unintentionally on my part capturing something that was in the water so to speak at the time and you know the cover being so extraordinary and perhaps doing something with historical fiction that people were looking for but perhaps hadn't encountered in a while booksellers happening to fall in love with it social media being so important so it's like this perfect storm that is completely you cannot reproduce it the factors are, I wrote the book granted, but all of the other factors are out of my hands. So my reaction to it has been complete joy because I'm not one of those writers who writes for my own sake. I write for my readers and I would no more write a book and not want lots of people to read it than I would cook a meal and not want lots of people to eat it. Like I very much see it as being a transaction with readers. So I'm d completely delighted. But then also there's this sort of Puritan feeling of a, a sinner such as myself does not deserve such blessings. And consequently, I'm going to take a public beating and punishment for it. So, so what I've had to do is reorient my idea of success. Mm -hmm. 
And it's very hard for me because I do want to please people. So for a long time, my idea of success was on how many people were pleased with me and how many people said, good girl, well done. And I've realised that actually, from now on, I hope my idea of success will be, have I got better? I want to never write another book as bad as The Essex Serpent again, if you see what I mean. Mm. I want every book to be better and then the next book to be better than that. And if I can focus on that as my kind of matrix of success, then... I won't go mad. <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. What does it do, I mean, for you as a, as a creative person, how far were you into the next book when the success of The Essex Serpent happened? Deeply into it. Um, I have a very particular way of writing, which is that I have an idea for a book and don't write it for about four years until it's, it feels like a book that I've read several times and I must now write in order for it to be passed on to other people. So by the time The Essex Serpent was out... Melmoth was following me everywhere and I already knew the book that I was going to write after that as well. So I always have like a cab rank of books. And I think that's really important actually for all writers to not fixate on the thing that's immediately happened to them. Already The Essex Serpent feels very distant to me because I've written Melmoth and I'm writing my next one and I'm looking to the one after that. So, um, yeah. So having had, I suppose, an external measure of success you now have a sort of internal one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember having lunch with my wonderful agent, Jenny, shortly after the, the Essex Serpent sort of exploded in the way that it did. And I had become obsessed with how to get better. And I sat with her in a, in a restaurant in Norwich, where I live, and said, Jenny, how do I get better? I have to get better. This is not good enough. None of this is good enough. I'm not sharp enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not rich enough. I have to get better. What shall I do? What shall I do? So it's not like playing the piano where you can progress from Chopin to Liszt to Rachmaninoff. You know, you, you, the, the measures for how good your books are are not that fixed. And she very wisely just said, read up. Read upward. And that's really important, I think. I have to keep reading books so good that they make me quail <laughs> at how poor my work is so that you're driven upwards. Um, so that's been very important for me. Is that? Do you think that's a common thing for all creatives, no matter what your field is? Um, I'm thinking partly because I used to be an actor and I knew that the thing that gave me a kick up the arse is if I watched a performance mm. and went, whoa, yeah, I need yeah. to really up my game. Do you think that would apply to you know, visual artists and singers. It must do. It must do. There's this amazing quote from someone that said, talent recognises genius, but mediocrity only knows itself. And I think talented people will always know genius when they see it. And if you don't, then you'll just become mediocre because you're not driving forward. And I suspect it's shared by all of us who make stuff, you know, the ability to look at something extraordinary and think my god the the book that did that for me most recently was amy sackville painter to the king i got halfway through it and thought yeah you're not good enough perry but it wasn't depressing it was thrilling because she'd shown me quite what you can do with prose mm. and um yeah that is the, the the great thing is to be thrilled by it and graham swift's latest book mother's day mothering sunday mm. that did that to me as well i was shaking my head all the way through thinking there you go that's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. As you say, that's good in a way. It's not a, a scary thing that stops you from writing. No. It's a thing that actually... Yeah, it's utterly you. thrilling. Yeah, really thrilling. How about the idea that somebody might read your books and have that same experience? Is that too weird to contemplate? It's strange, yeah. I have, uh, what I would hope for is not a 
qualitative assessment of my work, but of someone being pleased at how I did what I did, rather than thinking, I wish I could do that, thinking, mm. oh, okay, she did that, that's cool. I like the how she deferred from her own success by saying, I didn't do something, I just picked out something that was already happening. Um, mm. And it kind of raises quite an interesting question about kind of success against um, things that are topical. Something that comes to mind at the moment is um, Greta Thunberg and the climate crisis and kind of like campaigning against that. I Is the how vocal that movement is a result directly of Greta Thunberg or is Greta Thunberg a symbol for something that's much wider like yeah. where does the individual sit in relation to something kind of wider going on um which I, which struck me as really interesting but mm. it's also kind of a deferring it's saying i didn't do this i i'm just capturing something else um i think it's super interesting that idea of tapping into something that already exists but i wonder also i mean i loved that clip so much and mm. was nodding my head so vociferously at various <laughs> points including where she talked about Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift which is one of the most underrated and brilliant novels of the last decade I think it's incredible um, but I wonder it, how much of it is a gendered thing as well mm. because I know that speaking to a lot of but by no means all women who have experienced success there's a sense that they don't feel they deserve it mm. and they feel a misplaced degree of shame almost at having raised their voice particularly when they're telling their own stories or writing memoir mm. and I'm not sure from my generalised and anecdotal experience of doing the podcast whether <laughs> men with apologies to the two setting here <laughs> but whether um, men have quite the same feelings maybe you do maybe you can enlighten me I think it's something to do with awareness and I think that the patriarchy um if a man is praised, they just seem to take no, they have no qualms in saying, yep, yeah, I did it. It's whatever. like exactly yeah. how the world should be. If a man, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whereas yeah. quite often with women or minorities, if someone's kind of praised as success, they'll quite often be aware and say, yes, but, and you kind of saw that with Aaron Dutty Roy. I think that was mm. kind of a prime example of, yes, I've done X, Y, or Z, but I, this isn't the only story. Is that fair? Yes, yeah, totally. Completely. I think so. I, mean, I think there's not a mistake that there is a, a phrase, God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Because <laughs> yeah. it's sort of this thing of being able to stomp around like that's, it's just the status quo, right? It's just mm. how things are. And yeah, there are no qualms about totally deserving any success that you have. Um, and it, and that is, it feels like it's shifting slightly. Yes. Um, there's certainly more awareness, as you said, particularly at the moment with female writers of incredibly honest memoirs and essays at the moment absolutely just bearing their souls mm. to kind of go this is what it feels like this is this is what it what you go through in these various stages of life i think are opening a lot of readers eyes to to what life is really like for other people arundhati roy had said that she was writing very much for herself and it's about for her it's about getting the words right and then of course the readers come second and sarah perry had said that she was very much writing for her readers and yet they both seem to be driven by this need to get it right, to get better at the actual craft of writing, so that whilst their sort of audience dependence is different, the actual craft seems to be the same, coming from the same place. I and mean, you've written fiction yourself, Elizabeth, so it, do you have the same thing when you're sitting there writing fiction? Is it about staying there at the page until it's right? Yes, but it never is right. right. So that's the thing. Uh, it's Sadie Jones, who is another fantastic author, um, 
always said to me, you start out writing a book and you have a vision of a beautiful cathedral. And by the end of the book that you've written, you realise you've got a perfectly serviceable garden shed. (laughs) (laughs) And garden sheds are great. It's just not what you imagined at the outset. But I think that that is creative drive. That's what gives you the stimulus Mm. to keep going. As Sarah Perry was saying, to keep trying to get better, to aim for that cathedral. But the interesting thing for me is that I had to come to terms with the fact that I was never going to write like the writers I most admired. At the time that I started my first novel, I was going through a massive Tom Wolfe phase. I loved The Bonfire of the Vanities. And because I thought he was a brilliant writer, I sort of wanted to write like him. But it didn't come naturally. And it sounded like a terrible pastiche of Tom Wolfe (laughs) by someone with a received pronunciation in the accent. (laughs) And um, the revelation for me was when someone read my work and felt that it was valid just as my work, Mm. as my voice. And I realised that actually we all have our unique set of experiences, so no one else can ever write entirely like us or create anything entirely like us. And that's good. Mm. (laughs) And that actually I was... My trying to be like someone else diminished my chances of success. Mm. I needed to be the most myself I could on the page. But what that means is that I'm never fully satisfied when I finish a book because I always see the imperfections and how it could be improved. But I think that that's a good thing because, as Sarah Perry so brilliantly said, you need to keep getting better. And I love that idea that she had about reading up. Yeah. Such a good one. I mean, I'm a big one for just like reading everything, (laughs) like imbibing everything and reading around and like mm. I watch The Real Housewives at, at the same time as I might be reading Anna Karenina I'm yeah. a big believer in that kind of stuff mm. I love this idea of reading up as well and it kind of reminds me of a notion of utopia that's quite prominent in, on like the left with a capital L the political left um, not just like, your actual left and I'm sitting the, on your left <laughs> Elizabeth Elizabeth's idea of utopia yeah. um, which is rather than something you're aiming towards and is a fixed end goal it's something that lies at the centre and that you orbit around um, and can never really attain but you kind of catch glimpses of it or kind of see it mm. but you can never mm. quite get there um, and it strikes me as pertinent to success as well is this idea of something that you can kind of you're constantly skirting or aiming for or kind of dwelling on but never really attaining or if you do it's only fleetingly I think that's why people don't shout about their success enough because Mm. in your mind it might not be the end result that you are aiming for and therefore you don't feel like you can share that and celebrate what you have done but to other people it is a fantastic end end goal result well, so we've got a very English thing here, haven't we? Yeah. About yeah. being embarrassed about success or when people compliment you on something that you've done. It's like, oh, no, 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 it's nothing, it's nothing. Oh, this old thing. Yeah. 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 You just never ever see Americans doing that, for example. They're just like, hell yeah, I did that. And yeah, I deserve a high five and a pat on the back. You know, it's just a sort of completely different attitude. Mm. You, you were mentioning there as well about through the writing of taking time to actually find your own voice we have a bit of an obsession in this country about debuts you know always trying to find new voices mm. but there isn't that sort of culture of allowing writers to develop their craft to mm. find their voice yeah. it used to be sort of you know 30 40 years ago that authors would be terribly embarrassed by their first or maybe their second novel it was considered juvenilia and it would be sort of mm. i mean some authors even had theirs recalled like pulped and never read again but that really seems to have changed is that partly to do with the pressure to break through and to kind of immediately make your mark or should we be giving authors a bit more time to actually sort of develop oh I'd love there to be more time for authors to develop I think it's because we live in an age where we fetishize youth Mm -hmm. and um, again I think that's changing slowly Um, but it is starting to change but 
that combined with the need to make a splash on social media as part of the marketing of anything now, whatever you're selling from tights to books, (laughs) um, those two things mean that it feels as if an author always needs to have a personal story or like a point that is going to be talked about Mm. and a reason for being examined and interviewed and reviewed Mm. because there's only so much limited space to do that. And it's easier to do if it's a first-time author from the point of view of a publisher because they don't have a disappointing track record yet. So you're like, this is going to be the next big thing. If you don't interview this person, then you're going to look like the loser. So all of those things. And I think it's an enormously pressurised environment. And I actually now, with the benefit of hindsight... I really feel for people who get massive advances for their first book. Mm. I can say that because I in no way did. (laughs) (laughs) And and I really feel for them because actually if your book doesn't recoup that massive advance by selling an enormous amount of copies, you're seen as a disappointment, Mm. but you're not. You probably sold loads of copies. It's just that you haven't been able to recoup that. Mm. So I actually think that that's a very debilitating thing for authors. Yeah. There needs to be less money in publishing, said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally fine with getting massive advances now, by the way. <laughs> yeah, please, please provide your address for that advance yeah. to be sent to. Um, we've actually, through the conversation, we've actually mentioned a few books which we, th- we think are huge successes. But um, what we do at the end of each uh, podcast is to hear from booksellers around the country who will provide recommendations based on whichever theme we've been talking about. So let's hear from them now with their recommendations based on success. Hi, I'm Georgina from Leeds, and the book I'd like to recommend for success is On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. Our Watertons Children Book Prize winner's second book is equally unmissable. It's a fierce story of ambition, inequality, and fighting to be heard. Hi, I'm Katrina from Glasgow, and my recommendation on the topic of success is Range by David Epstein. In Range, Epstein argues that specialising from a really early point in your career isn't necessarily advantageous and that actually in a modern complex world having a range of analogies and experiences to draw from can actually make you much better at what you do than having to specialise far too early on. It's really really fascinating. Hi I'm Emma from Carmarthen and a great book to read about success would be Golden Hill by Francis Spufford simply because the plot twist at the end is nothing short of mind-blowing. So there we go. Uh, We've learned that failure and success are two sides of the same coin, I think you sort of said earlier on, Elizabeth. I think that's very wise. Um, And that we have this curious thing that we often bemoan the unfairness of the failures that visit us, but then don't tend to give ourselves a break and champion our own successes. So maybe we could just be a little bit kinder to ourselves and just say yay for us when we have a little moment of joy. (laughs) Elizabeth, thank you as ever for your honesty and your brilliance. Um, Holly and Dan, thank you again for sharing. Uh, We're going to be back in two weeks with the last episode of this first season uh, in which we're going to tackle the thing that it's all about in Albert Square, family. (laughs) (laughs) They're always saying that, aren't they? It's all about family. Um, So we're going to be hearing from Jeanette Winterson, A.M. Holmes and Emily Pine and we very much hope that you will join us. Until then, please feel free to contact us with feedback on social at waterstones.com. Do leave reviews or ratings on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, And until we see you again, take care and bye from us all here. Bye. Bye. So long. Thank me. (laughs) 